It is good to be back with you this week uh, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. We are now in chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 20. So we'll be looking at the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 3. Find your way there. I will begin reading here in verse 1 and we'll read down to verse 20. Luke chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Etureia and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages." As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word and hear from the life and ministry of John the Baptist, God, would you teach us this morning something about your ways, that we may know you more, that we, we, that we may know your way of salvation all the better and be reminded of the gift it is to us. Thank you for this time in your word. Would you teach us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How prepared do you feel? Now, obviously, that depends on particular context, Depends on where you are in life. Life is full of moments of preparation. Parents are called to prepare their kids to eventually leave the nest. 
Kids, your school is there to help prepare you with knowledge. Jeremy prayed for college students even this morning. It's part of the preparation of preparing us to contribute to society. If you have been in or are in the military, you go through what's called basic training, most of you, to prepare as a soldier or sailor or airman or marine. And a military career is really a career of constant preparation, isn't it? All of us are being prepared at some point in our life. My local church and Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky prepared me, or at least helped prepare me to be a pastor. My job as a pastor is to prepare you, as Ephesians tells us, to do the work of the ministry. On and on we could go. Life is filled with times and moments of preparation. And we come to our text this morning and we see a ministry of preparation, John the Baptist. According to Zechariah's prophecy back in chapter 1, verse 76, he says of his son, John, that he will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. I've always found this whole idea of John the Baptist being prophesied in the Old Testament, of of needing to come prepare the way for Jesus. I've always thought, well, Jesus, I mean, he's the son of God. What needs to be prepared for him to come? I mean, he, I think he can hold his own. Why is John needed? Well, I think when we begin to piece all this together and look at what the Lord has for us, we know that the ministry of John the Baptist was in fact a gracious gift to orient the people toward God's coming salvation. It was a gift. This is something that that God absolutely needed himself, certainly not, but it indeed was a gift to the people to prepare them for something that was about to come, something that had been long prophesied, long promised, was now about to be there before their very eyes, and John was to pave that road forward as Jesus would in fact come. So the ministry of John the Baptist was foundational to preparing the way for Jesus. And we see from this chapter at least four observations as to why that is the case. And we're going to walk through this chapter, at least the first 20 verses this morning. And I want us to note four observations about John's ministry that prepares the way for the coming ministry of Jesus that certainly informs and shapes how we ought to reflect upon the gospel itself. So even... With that being said this morning, I want to begin with the first observation as we consider John's public ministry. His ministry was a public ministry. If last time we heard anything about John was back in chapter 1, verse 80, where it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. Well, that day had come. We know from Matthew's gospel that his appearance was something else. He wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt, and he ate locust and wild honey. He spent his time in the wilderness. And this long-awaited ministry, this long-promised ministry, had now come into being. I want you to notice, first of all, the context of his ministry. Luke is very specific as to when John's ministry took place. Fifteenth year of Tiberius Caesar. He's the Roman emperor. It was during the, the reign of Pontius Pilate, who was governor of Judea. 
Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, and his brother Philip were regional rulers, tetrarchs, we're told. You have another uh, Licinius that's there and others, and then even Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. So, so Luke is, is setting the context for John's ministry, and I think it's an important setting. It's, it's easy for us to just zip right past that, but what is Luke trying to tell us? He, he's showing us who the movers and shakers are of the day, politically and religiously. Who's in charge? Well, it's Rome, and certainly even the religious leaders of the day uh, had connections to Rome and were kind of connected to them in ways maybe they didn't want, but at least that they had learned to succumb to. And so there's this, this context, really, of oppression. Things were not good in Israel if you were Jewish. And despite this strong grip of Rome, this wild-looking man from the wilderness burst on the scene. I want you to think about that. I think one of the things that Luke is trying to do is, is, is Luke is writing to Theophilus, and now by extension, the, the Holy Spirit, he's, he's informing us that the day in which John the Baptist's ministry launched was an evil day. And John's ministry would be an encouragement to anyone that regardless of who's in charge and regardless of just how bad or oppressive or difficult the day may be, we should never grow slack because of how evil the culture and times might seem. No matter the political or the religious climate, God's word was on the move. I think it's a good reminder to us all. The world will often hone in on those who are grappling for power, no matter the nation. Now, it happens all over the world, right? Political leaders that are, that are grappling for power, and we come into an election year, we, come in, we see that happening not only in our country, but in other countries as well, and, and the news is filled with all of these Caesar-type people. And it's interesting to me that Luke's saying, despite who seems to be in charge, there's yet another one who's actually calling the shots. God's going to do much more through this obscure, wild-looking man from the wilderness than he ever would do through some of the most powerful rulers of the day. The context is an important context. I want you to notice his call in verse 3. He sets the scene in verses 1 and 2 of who's, who's in charge, and then we're told that the word of God at the end of verse 2 comes to John in the wilderness and then he goes and launches into the calling the Lord had given him. He goes into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The call of John the Baptist with the backdrop of this Roman day, this Roman rule, is a great reminder, again, of how God often works. Certainly, he raises up kings and he brings them down, and he does a lot through the rulers of the world. Friends, one of the things that we see here is that God often works through the common. What John would accomplish through the work of the Holy Spirit would far outlast anything that the Roman Empire would have ever been able to do. It's this setting that the word of God comes to John and John's calling becomes clear. He's to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And so we see that John's ministry, John's calling was to a ministry of preaching. 
Again, I think we should be encouraged that God, when his word moves upon a person or a people, whether it's the simple shepherds or a teenage virgin like Mary or an old layman like Simeon or this man John from the wilderness, nothing, not even great empires can stop him. This is the call that John has is to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We consider the circumstances that John is ministering in and and I think that it's an encouragement to us because he is preparing the way for the Lord. I think oftentimes we consider the circumstances around us and we grow discouraged and defeated. We look around and we see culture, we see different things going on in our day and time and we we just grow defeated and discouraged. I was listening to an interview the other day that Dr. Russell Moore was doing with N.T. Wright, a great New Testament scholar, and he was asking, he's an Anglican, we'll forgive him for that, but he was, he's faithful, just, just showing to the, what the New Testament has to say, and, and he asked him, he said, are you concerned with the things that are going on in the Anglican world? Russell Moore asked him. Immediately, not at all. He said, I'm concerned about those things, but I'm not concerned that God's plans are failing. God's doing a great work in this world. As it shows us that God's ways will far outlast any evil that may exist in the world. See, Luke lists these men of power in places of prominence. And then what he begins to do is he begins to hone in on this man who came from a place of no power with no prominence. It shows how this one God would use to prepare the way for the Lord. He had a public ministry, and his calling and his context are important to see, but I want you to see, number two, the deliberate nature of his ministry. It's a deliberate ministry. We see in verse 3 that he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Then verse 4 says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The very first thing that we see concerning the ministry, the deliberate ministry of John the Baptist is that it's a ministry of promise. It's a ministry of promise. John's work, John's ministry had been prophesied by Isaiah some 700 years prior. Luke points us back to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. That entire chapter, by the way, Isaiah 40, is a chapter that that talks about God's promised salvation that's coming to his people. And that there would be this one crying in the wilderness in verses 3 through 5 of Isaiah 40 that would come and prepare the way. John's ministry was prophesied some 700 years prior, and now it's coming about, and you see this prophetic fulfillment taking place. Think about that. Think about the timeline, 700 years or so. It would be like something happening today here that was promised in 1320. That's a long time, right? It begins to to show you just the, the timeline on which God's at work. We grow impatient, don't we? God's plan should and must be trusted, even if we're not seeing it unfold in the ways and in the time in which we think it should. His ministry was a deliberate ministry, it was a ministry of promise, but notice it is a ministry of preparation. 
Isaiah says that John would prepare the way of the Lord. Then he begins to speak of these valleys being filled and mountains being leveled and crooked places being made straight. Now what Isaiah was talking about was not that God was about to physically alter the geography of the land. It was a metaphor used to highlight the work needed in the human heart. That God is going to raise up this one to cry in the wilderness, to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare people who needed this ministry of redemption. And John's ministry of preparation was indeed that as he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now you have to think about the context in which John is preaching. John is preaching into a largely religious context. People would have been very familiar with Judaism, if not practicing in that religion of the day. And they would have been quite familiar with a variety of different ceremonial washings. It was often the case that, that being a religious people, there would be these ceremonial type washings, baptism kinds of things that would take place. And people, that was, that was not unusual. And so when John begins preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, to them and their religious ears, it would seem like, oh, here's one more thing I need to do as an act of devotion and religious or, or, or religion to either worship God or the God of my own making. So it wasn't unusual. So even as they came out to be baptized, it didn't always mean that they understood exactly what they were, what John was communicating. Baptism would not have seemed unusual. As good religious people do, they would have gone to John to participate in yet another religious ritual. But this washing... This baptism, unique to John's ministry, was a means of preparation. John's baptism is not going to be the same baptism that we'll see later on that the church continues to practice today. It was unique to his ministry. The actual washing did nothing. But what it was was a symbol that pointed people forward to God's coming salvation. It's what accompanied this baptism that was more important. A call to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This baptism was a sign of this forgiveness. And we know that John's baptism was temporary. If you go to the book of Acts chapter 19, when Paul met with some disciples at Ephesus, they had received John's baptism. In Acts chapter 19 verse four, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you ask them about the baptism and about the Holy Spirit, and they're just like, we've received the baptism of John. He said, well, his was to look forward. This Jesus that he looked forward to has indeed come. You need to be baptized in his name. And so John's baptism was a temporary holder to point people forward as he prepared the way. This ministry of preparation was important because of what is implied here. It is implied that those who, what's implied is that we live in a world filled with sin. This, this call to repent and this call the, for the need for forgiveness of sin is a, is a reminder, it's a, it's a declaration of something that has gone wrong. This ministry of preparation, John is making that clear. 
It's even implied here that those who did not repent would face some form of judgment or punishment. Why the need for it? Why the need for salvation if not? You see, the preaching of the gospel today is a little different than the ministry of John's day, but yet it, in some ways it's still a ministry of preparation, isn't it? As we proclaim the gospel, we're not looking forward to what Christ will come and do to give us salvation. We are looking forward to his second coming when he will come and make all things new. The preaching of the gospel today is a ministry of preparation, not by uh, looking forward, but by looking back and telling folks, Jesus has indeed come. Jesus said, it is finished. See, John was faithfully telling people to prepare for the coming of God's salvation. And I think it's helpful for us to even consider that today, even though we're in a different position today. In our day and time, Jesus has come. He did live. He did die. He was raised from the dead. He did ascend to the Father's right hand. He has promised to come again. Are you prepared for that? See, John's ministry is a very deliberate ministry, setting the scene for this understanding of repentance, which leads me to the third point, a focused ministry. John's ministry was deliberate, but we've already seen that it had a particular focus, namely this focus of repentance. Now, that's not a popular word, is it? Repentance. When you're told to repent, it's not something we receive very well. But you just see this message of repentance that's mentioned here. Repent or repentance means to change one's mind or to change one's direction. It involves a deep alteration of the heart. It's an earnest resolve to break with sinful direction or a wrong direction in order to move into a right direction or a righteous direction. And here we see that repentance and forgiveness go together. They're linked together. We're told he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know, in John's gospel, Apostle John, he tells of the time when Jesus came to be baptized by John and he looks to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. See, Jesus was the one that would take away sin. Jesus was the one that would come and do everything needed to give us the forgiveness that God demanded or that, that we needed and that God supplied. And repentance is a call for us to see sin for what it is, thus our need for this forgiveness. And so in John's context, when he's calling people to repent, he understands repentance doesn't give them forgiveness. Repentance is just a, a powerful way to, to acknowledge the, the wrong that was existing in people's lives and in the world. It was a recognition that something bad had gone wrong, and when he's calling people to repent, he's exposing them for who they truly are and recognizing their need for forgiveness, something only Jesus can provide. It shows us the seriousness of sin and puts us in a position of seeing this need. Therefore, this is why John preached repentance as a means of preparing people for this coming salvation. Remember again, many of the folks John preached to were religious. They were coming him to him to be baptized. Yet another religious ritual to do, to perform. 
But John was well aware that one could be quite religious and still very lost. Friends, you can do all kinds of religious things and not be repentant. You can be sitting right here in this room today and not be truly repentant. There are a couple of characteristics we see about true repentance. First of all, repentance has an appropriate motivation. You see that in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, John would not be a very popular preacher today. He calls his listeners a brood of vipers, and that seems a bit strong. I don't think I've ever called you a brood of vipers, though you are, and though am I. He refers to them as this brood of vipers. In essence, offspring of poisonous snakes is the idea here. You know, it really wasn't for shock effect. He was just being honest. In the Old Testament, the word viper refers to the enemies of God. And he's saying, even you as religious people, in your religion, you still remain as an, someone who's an enemy of God. You're the offspring of this poison, poisonous snakes. He's exposing people for who they are. They are offspring of those who have stood as God's enemies. Ultimately, we know that the greatest enemy is the devil. and In some way in our sin, he is the one to whom we are owned by and before our conversion. His point is that they appear outwardly religious but are full of poison. They're coming to be baptized, and he's saying, you're, you're, you're the offspring of poisonous snakes. You, you, you need to understand something here. So by referring to them in such strong terms, he's highlighting their true condition. And the question he poses later highlights the danger they're in. Some talked about, is that a rhetorical question? Is it just a question that he's using as a play on words? The point being is that he's acknowledging the danger that they're truly in, the wrath that they will receive unless they repent. In other words, they need to truly repent or they will face God's right justice against their sin. He wants them to realize the true danger they're in and that their religion can't save them. This, this act of baptism is, is not going to do you any good unless you've been changed from the heart and you, you turn from the things that you're enslaved to now and put your hope in that which can truly and finally deliver you. Friends, I think that when we see this, there are a lot of things in the Bible, and you can make an argument either way, I guess, but there are a lot of things in the Bible that are descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. And I don't think that this is an example of where the Bible is saying, you need to go out and tell all lost people they're a brood of vipers. I don't know how helpful in your evangelism that will do. If the Lord answers Jeremy's prayer this morning that he would give us opportunity to share the gospel, I don't recommend you start with that. Although, I think what we do see here 
is that we do unbelievers no good if we do not warn them about the reality of God's justice against sin. We need to be honest in our assessment of what God has revealed to in his word, that he is holy and that we are separated from him because of our rebellion against him. And that is something we have inherited. Friend, if you're here today and you have not committed your life to following Jesus, then I hope that you hear that clearly. Friend, if you are not following Jesus, you are facing real eternal danger. And you cannot escape that danger on your own. You can be baptized 225 times. That will not release you from that danger. Only a work that we're going to see as we continue to walk through this passage, only a work that God does in in the heart. and, And John's only preparing for this ministry to come that Jesus will actually accomplish but only a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart can bring that about. And John is going to tell us later that if you want to find true life and true repentance, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't look to John. Don't look to his baptism. Don't look to anything that he had to say. Look to Christ. Because this is the one who would come and give his life for sin. So that all who would look to him and put their hope in him, not in themselves, not in their works, not in anything else, but their hope in him and his finished work, those and those alone would be forgiven of their sins, accepted rightly before God, and no longer in danger. Friend, if that is you, look to Jesus and put your hope in him. He is the only one that can rescue you, and he is willing to do so. Repentance has an appropriate motivation. We are in real danger. Repentance also has an appropriate fruit. Verses 8 through 14. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And, you, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's quick to point out that true repentance can be distinguished from false repentance. And true repentance has along with it fruits. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He knows that people are going to come hear him that they will have various, kind, various kinds of motives in coming to, to be baptized. And he didn't assume that their interest in baptism is equal to their interest in loving God and neighbor. He was aware of the potential of hypocrisy in the human heart. And he appeals to them at that level saying, listen, do not come and be baptized thinking that this is just someone, this is just yet another act of religious ritual that will somehow get you right. You need to understand that true repentance will have fruit with it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Understand that there is a transformative work that goes on in the human heart when someone truly repents. 
And he appeals to where their confidence would be resting. It's not in their tradition. Often would have been the case back in that day and time that, that, that Jews would just say, well, we're sons and daughters of Abraham. Abraham's our father. We were born into this. And he's warning them not to put their hope in that. Friends, repentance is not just something that goes on in our mind or not just something that, that we inherit because we're born into a particular family. Salvation is demonstrated by a transformed life, not by your last name or by what religious heritage that you were born into. We've, done, we've partnered with churches or a church in Moldova for several years. And one of the beautiful things about serving in Moldova from the Moldovan believers is when they speak of conversion, they will not say, I trusted in Jesus in 2008. You know what they'll say? I repented. They refer to themselves as repenters. Virtually every time you ask about their testimony, they will say, well, I repented back in such and such. They understand the gospel, the call to repentance. A lot of people claim to be Christian today because they were, because of some tradition. I, I hear it often, you know, are you a believer? Well, I'm Baptist. That's not what I asked. Are you a believer? I'm Catholic. That's not what I asked. Are you trusting Christ? And so, so people will use this language. Well, I'm this or I'm that. Well, that's not what the Bible is concerned with. The Bible is concerned with whether or not you have repented and put your hope in Christ. Really, reality is that a new birth is required, not the birth that you have, not your last name. And only this new birth will prove itself out in fruitfulness. Note the warning of verse 9, fruitless people will be cast away because they weren't genuine. And I think this is just yet another reminder to us, those of us in this room right now who claim to follow Jesus Christ, who claim to have repented of our sins, that your life will bear witness to whether or not that's true. And in the end, fruitless unrepentant people will be cast away. And I think this is just a gift of grace, just a, another, yet, yet another warning for us to examine ourselves, to make our calling and election sure, to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith, not to cause you to unnecessarily doubt your salvation, not at all, but have you truly repented and put your hope where your hope must rest? Verses 10 through 14, John shows us just how practical the fruit of repentance can be. As crowds came to be baptized, they asked him, well, then what should we do? And he gives the, you know, he, he shows them what repentance looks like. He shows them the fruit of repentance. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors, don't overcharge people. Only charge what you're required to charge. That'll be enough. Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you should be authorized. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. Soldiers would often extort people of money. Probably because they were underpaid, but 
You see that the point he's making, he's using just a few different practical examples here to show that repentance, true repentance, the, one of the fruits of repentance, and he just uses one example here, is it demonstrates itself in true kindness to others. Repentant people understand just how gracious God has been to them, and they're willing and eager to extend that same grace and kindness to others. Friends, I just ask you, do the fruits in your daily life prove your repentance? Is it evident? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? See, John's message was a message about repentance. It's also a message centered on Jesus. You see that in verses 15 through 18. John's got quite a ministry going, quite a following. He's gathering crowds and he's baptizing many and people are coming to him and calling him teacher and asking him all kinds of questions. So much so that they began to wonder whether or not he might be the Messiah. See that in verse 15, whether he might be the Christ. And John was very quick to to clarify that one, wasn't he? John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. You see, John understood his role, and he wasn't about to advance himself above that role. He understood his place, his position, and that there was one that was greater than him, and his responsibility was to point people to that one. It's a message centered on, a message centered on Jesus, first of all, his position. He refers to the mightier, than, the mightier one, that's coming, the strap of whose sandals I am worthy to untie. Most back in those days, we didn't have Nike, so they wore sandals. And it was often the duty of a slave to untie the straps of his master's sandals. In Judaism, that act was seen as such a degrading act that a Hebrew slave was not even permitted to do it. And so for John to use that reference just shows the depth of his humility and the greatness of of who Christ is. It's a clear expression of humility and a clear declaration of the greatness of Jesus. Because I think it's a good lesson, a good good example for us in many ways. I I see a lot of Christians, even a lot of pastors, doing a lot of things to promote themselves. There's a lot of ministries, a lot of pastors doing a lot of self-promotion out there. They love to talk about themselves. They love to talk about their ministries. They love to post pictures of themselves. They love to do all these things out there just to promote themselves. And even the worst of them get on TV and start asking for lots of money. This is not gospel ministry. John the Baptist understood that he had a particular role to fulfill, and it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus, the one who was mightier than him. Friends, listen, if our ministry does not constantly point to Jesus, then we have no ministry. The last thing I want people in this community and beyond this community to know about Redeeming Grace is my name. If they don't know that Redeeming Grace is a group of people about the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have failed in some way. See, John understood that. Jesus is the one that we must be about not only did, was it a message about his position, it was a matter of a message that 
that highlights the, the work of Christ, the provision that he would come and bring. Notice John says, he's mightier than I am, but he also has a better baptism than I do. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's not referring, I don't think, here to water baptism. He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself baptized no one by water. Baptism would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. This baptism would divide people into two groups, those who received the Spirit and those who did not. Those who were truly regenerate, those who were truly repentant, those who were truly Christian, and those who were not. See, those who receive the Spirit are protected from the judgment to come. And this division is illustrated by the reference of the winnowing fork. It was a tool back in that day that would be used to lift wheat from the grain, wheat grain from the threshing floor and they would toss it into the air and the chaff would float away and be gathered and collected and burned in a different pile while the true grain would fall right back to the floor. And John is simply saying that he who is mightier than I is coming and he is bringing a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. He will sort out those who are truly his and those who truly aren't. It's coming. This unwanted chaff would be blown away and be gathered and done away with while the good would remain. You see, Jesus is the one who would bring decisive judgment. He's the greater one because of his authority, because of his position, because of his power, because of who he is. And he brings a greater and better baptism because of what it provides. It's baptism of the Holy Spirit. And friends, just to be clear, there's confusion about that today. Some in Christian circles today will, will try to tell you that you believe in the gospel and that the baptism is some second blessing that comes later. That is not true. It is when you believe the word of truth that you are saved and sealed and receive the Holy Spirit at that moment of conversion. It is not some second greater blessing later on. It is a gift of grace at the moment you believe. You receive the Holy Spirit. He's the greater one because of who he is and because of what he does. Friends, the question I think is fair to ask for you this morning is, is if he was to come into this room with his winning fork this morning and toss us all into the air, would you remain or would you blow away? Which would be evident. That day's coming. It's a ministry centered on Jesus. But last but not least, it's an enduring ministry, and we see that in the last few verses of our text. I love verse 18. It says, so with many other exhortations, he, John, preached good news to the people. It's kind of a great summary statement of his ministry. He preached good news. This baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin was good news because it was paving the way and pointing forward to the one that would actually come and accomplish that work that we need. It's good news because we're all in bad shape. We're all broken. We're all sinners. We all are outside of, of the camp. We all have rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And John is saying there is one that's coming who is mightier than me and his baptism is greater because he can actually save you. I can't. And he commits his life to that work. And he endures and he remains faithful to that work. He was a man committed to the good news. And that 
that was seen. You see it through his faithfulness. First of all, you see it in his faithfulness to the gospel. He preached the same message to everyone, no matter who they were. Look at verse 19. See the summary in verse 18. He preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, he had an unlawful marriage, and John called him out on it. And for all the evil things that Herod had done. So he pointed out other things that Herod had done that were evil. As he preached the good news, it didn't matter if John was preaching to common people out in the wilderness or if he was standing before kings and rulers. His message was the same. His message didn't change based upon who he was before. We can talk about contextualization. I think it's important that we understand how to do that well, but the message remains the same. How you communicate it may change at times because of the culture in which you're in and how you're, you're shaping the message so that people understand in their culture and day and time what the truth is, but that message doesn't change. He's, he's faithful to the message. He stayed faithful to the clear teaching of truth, to the clear teaching of the gospel. And friends, I think it's a great example for us in that we must not waver on the truth. It is tempting to do that. I'm just, I'm just a man. It's tempting for me to do that at times. You start to feel the weight and the pressure and the, and the, uh, the day and time, and you, you want to you be liked and you want to feel welcomed by all people, and, and you, you want to make sure that you're loving people well, and yet we're called to maintain faithfulness to the truth. And how we do that's important. The last thing that we could ever do would be to give up the, the truthfulness of the gospel. The truthfulness of God's word, we must stay faithful to that message no matter what. John's message wasn't softened or revised because of Herod. Friends, we will be tempted to soften and revise the message day after day after day, but we must not. We must remain faithful to the gospel, and we must remain faithful no matter the cost. Notice John's commitment to do this would prove costly. He ends up in prison. And we're not told this here, but we're told it in Matthew 14 that he was beheaded. How's that for preparing the way, you know, payment for preparing the way for Jesus? You're going to jail and you're going to lose your head. But thanks, way's been prepared, right? Ministry can be costly. Serving Christ in a world that detests the truth can be costly. This is why we're tempted to, to waver at times. This is why we're tempted to bend. This is why we're tempted to, to bow and, and to break at times to, to, to those who may be around us. And, but, but John understood that he needed to be faithful to the message he had been called to preach no matter what it would cost him, and he went to prison. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we are all called to be a faithful witness to Christ, that we be clear on the gospel even when it clashes against the worldview of others. Now, there are tactics and methods in which you do that, and you can do it well and faithfully and loving people well. And there are bad ways Christians have done that throughout the years and just made more, caused more damage than good. But you must remain faithful to the, to the clear teaching, ministry of the gospel. And you must, friend, be willing to count the cost. You must be willing to lose friends and to lose relationships and family members if that's what it means in the end. 
to stay faithful to the calling of Christ. Jesus made that crystal clear. He doesn't tell us to go out and do that first, but you must be willing to endure the cost. Sometimes it will mean imprisonment. Sometimes it will mean worse. And just think in the last, since Christ, last 2,000 years, there have been more people killed for their faith than ever. Even in the last century alone, more and more Christians are being slaughtered because of their commitment to Christ. Are you, are you in it for the long haul? Or just when it's comfortable and easy and it seems to fit your schedule and timing? Kind of gives you some help along the way, maybe with things you like. See, gospel ministry is often risky, and we need to embrace that risk as his people and be faithful no matter the cost. John had a unique role. I think a role that had been uniquely given to him. And there are many things about John's ministry that won't be repeated. A lot of principles, I think, that we can carry on, but a lot of things that he uniquely fulfilled himself. A role that had been prophesied hundreds of years prior. A role that wouldn't be repeated, and yet a ministry that paved the way for Jesus. And while his unique role was to be re- wasn't to be repeated, certainly we learn a lot about ministry from him. John said, one who is mightier than I is coming. Well, guess what? He came. And he lived, and he died, he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to the heavens right hand of the Father, and he's coming again. He came and took upon himself the full requirements God established for our salvation. You remember Isaiah's prophecy. At the end, it says there in verse 5 of Isaiah 40, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Friends, we stand in a long line of faithful witnesses continuing to point others to Jesus. We stand ready to declare a message to the watching world that the Savior of the world has come and he is coming again to make all things new. We need to remain faithful to preach that good news no matter the cost so that all flesh will in fact see the salvation of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gift of grace. We thank you for your gift of preparation that you sent John to prepare the way. To boldly declare the need because of the damage that sin had caused, the separation. Father, we thank you for this gift of his ministry as it boldly prepared the way in the coming of Christ, exposing the reality of sin, so that people would see their need for a Savior. Father, my prayer this morning is that we would see just that, that we would see the true condition of who we are, that we would see our need for a Savior, and if we've not trusted in him, that we would cry out to him today for his gift of grace. We would cling to Christ as our only hope in life and in death. And Father, for those of us who have, I pray that this would be yet a reminder to us of the gift of grace that you have given, the promises that you have made are fulfilled, and the promises that you've made in the future will come to pass just as they have in the past. God, would you renew our faith and would you give us strength in our souls this day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.